Let me invite you to the 18th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 18. My wife is from Tennessee, and we've spent a good amount of our life in ministry in Tennessee and Kentucky. And so since 2016, it's certainly been nice to be back in the Mid-Atlantic. But also, it's been interesting to note the evangelism and discipleship challenges, um, being away from the Bible Belt and the buckle of the Bible Belt and Many of my friends say, what do you think? And they usually want some kind of negative assessment. And I'm, I always say, it's refreshing. I was like, evangelism is like raw up here. Uh, we don't have those pretenders and fake people y'all have down there. <laughs> people just say, no, I ain't no Christian. I don't want to be a Christian. Get out of my face. I'm like, that's refreshing. I mean... <laughs> Those kind of people down south at least feel the need to act like they are Christian. <laughs> so it is, a, uh, it is refreshing to be in a different missiological setting. But even in those settings, I'm often encouraging Christians to remember the cost of discipleship. Salvation is free. Following Jesus is costly. So costly that the Lord himself said, before you come after me, count the cost. It's too expensive up in this area of the country, so you don't see this like you see it down in the south. But often I would preach in Tennessee and Kentucky, and you could go up a road and you see a church being built. And I preach again at the, in that area a year later, and you see the same church building being built and the same kind of progress being made, and you realize, wow, when they started building this building, they did not count the cost. Earlier in life, when we had the first interaction in the Middle East, maybe Desert Storm, and um, we've kind of been an airstrike kind of country and an airstrike kind of military. And I remember just articles and articles how we were kind of caught off guard by the ground warfare that was necessary to engage in certain countries. And um, some of our strategists had not count the co- did not count the cost of engaging this kind of particular enemy. And so likewise, sometimes we meet Christians and you realize that, wow, they did not count the cost of following Jesus Christ. Now, I always quickly say, many times it's not their fault. Um, I don't have much to say about people that sit in chairs in Christian congregations. Uh, Most of what I say about Christian congregation is, based upon the dudes that stand up in front of them and teach and share the word or the lack of the word with the people in the chairs, which forms the people in the chairs or does not form the people in the chairs. So the people in the chairs don't understand the cost of discipleship. It's often not their fault because sometimes the guy up front just wanted the people in the chairs, so he never spoke about the cost of discipleship. 
And so in the 18th chapter, I want to read up to it, but there's just phrase. Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? A lot of followers of Jesus Christ expect that to be a cost-free commitment. And Jesus said, if anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And as I referred earlier, he said, before you come after me, count the cost. So that means that the follower of Jesus Christ, as we share the gospel, we don't try to do the... um, I don't want to caricature any particular person like an insurance agent. We don't, we, don't try to, we, we, we don't try to like talk up high and overlook the fine print. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, no, pay attention to the fine print. Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all things, fine print, whatsoever I have commanded you. I mean, haven't you met Christians where, where like Christianity 101 kindergarten is not even on their radar? Like if you ask them what's the greatest commandment, they uh, uh, love the Lord and love your neighbor. But that's not even like in their framework in a utilitarian what can I get from God kind of culture. And so this little part right here really presses us to consider the cost of being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. All of the Gospels, when you get to the end of those Gospels and get into the passion narratives, all of that stuff is weighty. And the fact that all of it is weighty is consistent with the fact that if you talk to a whole lot of Christians, the passion is not like the number one thing they think about all the time. Like, what have you been studying lately? Oh, what the Bible says about marriage, or what the Bible says about money, or what the Bible says about Christians and politics, or what the Bible, I mean, uh, it's hard to, me. oh, I've been studying the agony of Jesus on the cross. I mean, that just doesn't fit the happy-go-lucky, smiley, Joel Osteen image of American Christianity. But it is a significant portion of every gospel. And I think Christians need to form culture. I love music and art and other such things. But one thing that art has not always done well in in the history of Christianity is serve to image the crucifixion. Because most art that details the crucifixion is kind of neutral. It doesn't look agonizing. It doesn't look like the Christ is struggling. I don't know how you feel about movies, but, you know, Mel Gibson got the picture. He got the images right in the Passion of the Christ. I mean, no one left out that theater saying, hmm, that story about Jesus is Interesting. No, everyone left out of the theater some form of traumatized from the visuals. And he took the visuals 
He says he took the visuals from the Gospel of John. In the 18th chapter, I want to read the 11th verse, but I always like to kind of read up to verses. I think in American Christianity, we don't read that much scripture. So I always try to read more than less. And so I want to start at the beginning, but I do want the 11th verse. After Jesus has said these things, and I'm sorry, I'm Southern Baptist, so this is the Christian Standard Bible I'm reading from, <laughs> available at any Lifeway store. I'm just sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry. John 18, <clears throat> after Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have lost not one of them that you have given me. That's a word he said in the prayer in John chapter 17. Verse 10 says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? The Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845, and also in 1845, Frederick Douglass wrote a narrative of his life. And in the midst of the narrative, he made comments and critique of professing or established Christianity at that time. And being a Methodist, he came back and he added an appendix to his narrative that said, you know, I read my narrative and... Maybe some of y'all might think I have some bad feelings about Christianity. Say, so let me make it clear to you. I make a big distinction between the Christianity of America and the Christianity of Christ. And uh, I've always found that to be somewhat of a helpful distinction. So the Americanized Christianity is that form of Christianity that sometimes has been influenced by drastic things about America that are inconsistent with the Scripture. I mean, it's not unique to America. I just came back from Kenya. Uh, my daughter and I were in Kenya doing some missionary work and some pastoral training. Um, and sometimes I would talk to pastors there about things that were just kind of quirky in the way they did some things, and it was really just the strong influence of local cultural things 
that were inconsistent with the scripture. Um, then in Tanzania, Tanzania and uh, the Congo, there are also sometimes things that are just kind of like cultural, and you always have to kind of like walk the line between the Scripture critiquing that which is culture, and then also making sure as an outsider you're not coming in with anything that is ethnocentric. Or uh, that word that you certainly don't want to be called as a missionary, colonialistic. <gasps> But some stuff is just raw biblical truth that applies everywhere. So I'm talking to some men and I'm like, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, you know, I realize kind of how y'all do y'all houses is different and all that kind of thing. But uh, would it hurt your cultural sensibilities if you made it easier for your wife to get the water in the morning? I don't no, no. <laughs> and, uh, and so some of these guys started like have, making these little wagons. And so the wife can bring the water back from the river or wherever, with, you know, pulling the wagon with wheels instead of like carrying that heavy water on her head. I mean, they know how to do it. It's one of their cultural things. But I mean, you're like, hey, sister, you know, you want your head or the wheels? Uh, the wheels. <laughs> <laughs> So it's not unique to America. Every follower of Jesus Christ, wherever he or she is, has to always be open to the fact that there might be things about my culture that are influencing me as I seek to follow Jesus Christ. And sometimes those things might not be consistent with the scripture. So we have the big American idols, power, sex, and money. Um, but we have uh, some smaller idols, too, and one of them is, like, convenience. I don't want to be inconvenienced, and I don't want to do anything that's going to, like, cost a lot. My wife and I, we have a similar personality trait. Woo, we hate to be nailed down. My aunt called, hey, we having some dinner. Y'all want to come by? I said, yeah, 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 we might come by. She said, can I put you on the list? Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. <laughs> My father has died, and I have two aunts, his sisters, and so, I, yeah, I feel some obligation to y'all. Go ahead, put it on the list. <laughs> but my wife and I, we like to be loose. Well, a strong impulse in our culture is a superficial or cheap commitment to things of the Lord or things of, quote, spirituality or religion. And that's not just a temptation for Christians. That's a part of our culture. When I'm sharing the gospel with people, I meet somebody that's Jewish, and I want to ask them about the law and the Pentateuch. Uh, when I lived in New York, I can't tell you how many people are like, I'm Jewish. I said, oh, let me ask you that. They said, well, you know, I'm not practicing. What? Well, you ain't Jewish. <laughs> I'm Muslim. Oh, well, let me, well, what do you think about what the Quran said? Well, I mean, I mean, I, mean, I ain't practicing. I meet so many I ain't practicing type people. They just want to like wear a t-shirt. But sadly, they're also just like t-shirt Christians. And when we really talk about the cost of following Jesus, 
We really talk about those things that are necessary, uh, 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 and this is easy among a people who believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of those things that are following Jesus require the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. All those things in John and Acts, where we impress what Peter did and what John did. If you look before they said what they said, or they confronted who they confronted, the Bible will say about three verses back, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, or in John filled with the Holy Spirit, they said such and such or they did such and such because there's a costly commitment to follow Jesus Christ here Jesus is getting ready to do what he came to do remember the angel saying his name shall be called Jesus and he shall save his people from their sin and in the midst of Jesus getting ready to do what he came to do, it becomes obvious that the task is a hard task and an agonizing task. And one of his close disciples is struggling with the cost and the agony of it. Jesus says, I need to drink the cup that my father has given me. In the 10th verse, Peter's trying to resist the whole process. Cuts off the servant's ear. This is not the first time he struggled with this process. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus several times, in all the gospels, he begins to prep his disciples. Well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed by the high priest. I'm going to be betrayed and given over to the high priest. I'm going to die, be crucified. And on the third day, I'll rise again. And in Matthew 20, chapter, Peter says, Oh, no, Lord, that, that doesn't sound good. That's not convenient. That doesn't fit the comfortable narrative I'm expecting. That doesn't speak to fit the kingdom narrative that I'm expecting. And Jesus says to Peter, this disciple who loves him, get behind me, Satan, for you're not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. <clears throat> Convenience, comfort. It's not a promise of the Lord. It's a desire that we have. You know, I often remind preachers, God told Ezekiel, go and prophesy to the people. And, and <laughs> uh, this one, you have to be obedient. God said, oh, yeah, let me just tell you in advance. They ain't going to hear nothing you say. <laughs> in fact, God said, let me tell you in advance. They're going to be nasty. Don't be scared of their faces. What, what, what is your will? What is your purpose? Why in the world am I going to people that won't hear me? But I do want to have the testimony that a prophet of the Lord has been among them. His will is not always comfortable. His will is not always convenient. And I meet many followers of Christ, many professing Christ followers who struggle with the cost of discipleship. The chapter opens in chapter 18 says, and Jesus had said these things after he said these things. Uh, the things that they're talking about here, John is referring to, are the things that he prayed in the 17th chapter. And many times, rightly so, Jesus' prayer in John 17, people focus on his prayer for the unity of his followers. And that is, that is quantitatively the weight of that prayer. 
Like from chapter, in chapter 17, verse 6 to the end, he's focused on new disciples and then the unity of all his disciples. But in John chapter 17, uh, uh, verses 1 through 5, he's focusing on the moment of where he is and what he's about to do. Listen how the prayer opens. Jesus, in, at the beginning of John 17, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. And the glorification that he is speaking of is the crucifixion and the resurrection. So yes, Qualitate, quantitatively, the weight of the prayer in John 17 deals with the disciples and the unity of the disciples. But the prayer opens with Jesus recognizing it is now time to perform the will of the Father. And that performance is going to be tough. The Bible will say things like, as he prays, his soul was sore vexed within him. The Bible will tell us things like Jesus praying and saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What is one of the most needed words in Americanized Christianity? Nevertheless. We don't specialize in submitting our will to the will of the Father. We don't specialize in having our will transformed, corrected, and reformed by the will of the Father. I mean, one of the top ten hymns in Americanized Christianity is not, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your will while I am waiting, yielded. And still, oh, 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 no, 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 no. I mean, the top ten in Americanized Christianity is stuff like enlarge my territory, bless me, bless me. Give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. I won't say I'm ever manipulating you, but that's really what I want to do is manipulate you. Give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. And then people say, ooh, that's such a cool song. That's where we are. But the Bible says he prayed, let your son now glorify you by doing what you sent him to do. And so in verse 11, after Peter, back in John 18, when Peter cuts off the servant's ear, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. Yes, this is an inconvenient spot. This is an agonizing spot. This will not be pleasant. You've just seen me betrayed. You're going to see me arrested. I know you don't feel good right now, but this is the will of the Father. Your natural divorce, your natural resource, your natural response, your natural desires, put that away. Put away your sword. Put away anything natural in you that would let you resist the will of God because it's inconvenient. I mean, that strike says, I don't want you to arrest my master. 
I don't want my master to suffer. And Jesus says, put that sword away. I can't tell you as a pastor over 20 years how many times I've sat with couples and like listened for like 45 minutes of, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. And like, what church have y'all been in? Please don't tell anybody you a member here. Where in the world is the starting foundation of the Lordship of Christ? Where in the world is the starting foundation of the authority of the Scripture? Where in the world is there anything to check the ah, 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 ah? Where is there anything to check that? That's where we are. We struggle... I have friends that struggle with what they see as cultural influence slipping away from Christians. And no one wants that. I don't want to be culturally marginalized. But I mean, my desires don't determine the will of God. I mean, God told his people, yeah, y'all going down into Egypt for 400 years. I mean, I saw they were like, woo, that sounds good. <laughs> I'm sure the 10 southern, southern tribes weren't happy when they saw the Assyrians coming over the hills. I'm sure the two southern tribes weren't happy when they saw Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming. But obedience to God and the will of God and the purposes of God are not determined primarily by our wishes and our desires. The Son of God is getting ready to drink what the Scripture calls a bitter cup, what he calls the cup of God's wrath, what is a cup that Jesus knows his disciples will not want to drink, and he is readily getting ready to drink that cup because obeying God is not always a convenient and a comfortable thing. Put that away. Peter does not have ill motives toward Jesus. Peter does not have ill motives toward the Father. Peter is just wrapped up in what he wants and what he thinks is convenient. And certainly my master, my teacher, the one who is coming to establish the kingdom of God, being arrested and crucified, sure enough doesn't seem convenient. Peter, apostle to the Jews, he should be well versed in the prophets. And Isaiah said, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. I mean, if you want to begin to grow in discipleship, can you at least get honest that you don't understand the way God does some things? Can we at least get more honest and say, I don't even like the way God does some things. 
But then as people who, <laughs> as people who are anyway associated with the word sovereign, can we at least testify like my late pastor, he can do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, with whom he wants to do it, because he's sovereign? So the Bible says, put your sword away. That's his rejection of Peter. But his own settling of himself after his time of prayer, after saying, now let me glorify you after not my will, but thy will be done. He settles himself with, am I not to drink the cup my father has given me? I mean, like it or not, who am I to resist the will of God? I mean, I have some just not the most responsible cousins. I'm sure all y'all have nice families, but I've got, <laughs> I've got dysfunction that goes on. And sometimes when I just want to, like, totally not care, because you're really not in my budget, <laughs> and I already have these things I want to do, I do think about stuff like, he who does not take care of his own household is worse than an infidel. I was convicted in Kenya when I was talking to these pastors, and they think of siblings and cousins in a whole different way than we live, than we do. The Bible and Africans and Asians are Eastern. And Canadians and Northern Europeans and Americans and sometimes South Americans are Western. And we emphasize the me myself, and I. And they emphasize the we and the us. This pastor was telling me how he and his brother and a sister take care of their parents. <laughs> and I was a little tickled. I was like, man, the churches I pastored, mostly white, mostly black, all the churches I pastored, it'd be hard to get three siblings to kind of like financially take care of their parents because they all doing their own thing. Half of them don't even trust each other. I mean, I know this doesn't happen in this church. <laughs> but I've always pastored people where they have multiple siblings, and as a parent get older, you know, they have six siblings, but it's still like one or two of them that actually takes care of the parents. And there's always three or four of them that just kind of like check out because they're doing them. That's, part of, that, that, that's not part of the scripture. That's part of Western autonomous individualism that has affected us. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that type of individualism and selfishness ought to be able to be checked by the scripture. Like the kind of person I'm in, I am one of the most radical verses in Scripture for me is John 13 when Jesus bows down and washes the disciples' feet. That works on you. 
I mean, I was a child when President Reagan was president. I'm used to like strength, power, big bombs, big planes. Like I don't even like the world right now because I grew up in a world where everybody was scared of us. I mean, I know y'all are nice, progressive people, but I grew up in Prince George's County. I like the world being scared of us. <laughs> and I'm in a, we, we're, we're in a whole different place now. What, what, what sensibilities do I have that are, quote, American or Western that need to be checked by the scriptures? One of them is a resistance to suffering for Christ. And we sing praises together. We rejoice together. In the sovereign grace body of churches, y'all rejoice more joyfully than many of my Southern Baptist brothers and sisters. But we can never forget that we rejoice because Jesus Christ drank the cup. Am I not to drink the cup my Father has given to me no one signs up for the incarnation taking off your glory doing Philippians 2 who been formed who, who, who being equal to God counted in that robbery to humble himself and take on upon himself the form of a servant I mean no, no, no one volunteers no, no one is happy about walking down I mean, we live in a world of moving on up. That's why everybody liked the Jeffersons. We moving on up (laughs) to a deluxe apartment in the egg. We used to be there, now we're there. That's that's America. When I was a child, my first seven years, we were in Northwest and then Northeast. And and, and to go from D.C. to Prince George's County, home of the largest black middle class, that was like, woo! But you always have this moving on up mentality because then you're in the Prince George's County suburbs, home of the largest black middle class, but you're still always looking like, yeah, but it ain't Montgomery County. Because <laughs> this was the spot when I was a kid because two people were over here and they were both on River Road in Potomac. <laughs> Wonder Woman and Sugar Ray Leonard. <laughs> Man, wherever Wonder Woman and Sugar Ray Leonard are, that's the place to be. But the scripture is not a story on moving on up. Often it's a story of his disciples being ridiculed. Often it's a story of his disciples agonizing. Often it's a story of uh, 1 Peter. You are strangers and sojourners traveling through a barren land, but don't forget... You're a holy nation, a chosen generation, a peculiar people. Take that word and land somewhere between peculiar is not like everybody else. But I used to always tell my late pastor, but peculiar don't mean you have to be strange and weird. (laughs) But it is peculiar. So let me ask you, when you rejoice, do you remember that we rejoicing because he drank the bitter cup? When we rejoice, do we remember that we, we rejoicing because of the cross of Christ? 
When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Do, do, we, do we remember that? And sometimes in the five steps to financial freedom or the five steps to a happy marriage, we can overlook reflecting on the agonizing obedience of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in the pursuit of a Christian America or the pursuit of whatever you think ought to happen politically with Christian influence in the culture, we can overlook meditating on the agonizing crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Am I not to drink the cup? And last thing I need to tell you is, remember I told you, he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. So I don't want to give the impression like, hey, we ought to drink the cup, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, when you know the will of God, you will always feel good about drinking the cup. No, 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 no. That's one of the benefits of Christian community. We need other brothers and sisters in the Hebrew 10 sense to provoke us on the good works, and one of those good works is, hey, drink the cup. I'm sure your pastors are deep. I'm not even that deep as a pastor. Talking to a dude, man, my wife this, my wife this, my wife this, my wife this, my wife this. I mean, sometimes like my theological seminary educated response is, you asked her to marry you. (laughs) Drink the cup. Sometimes I'm talking to pastors and they say, man, if I preach such and such, some of my members are going to be irritated. Drink the cup. Sometimes I'm talking to parents, well, if I don't let my kids do such and such, they're going to be different than some of the worldly kids around them. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, uh, Drink the cup. I have young adults now. They're like, Dad, everybody else is like, oh, Dad, everybody else, drink the cup. <laughs> Here's the same rich theological statement I've made y'all hold their whole lives. I don't care about everybody else, and I hear everybody else's daddy. Mm-hmm. That's right. Good. Drink the cup. No, you and I will never die on the cross. The ultimate cup has been drunk by the Lord. But you and I are commanded by him to take up our cross daily and follow him. And the phraseology of taking up your cross automatically lets you know it's not always something you want to do. I define taking up the cross as where the will of God and my will intersect and my will submits. That's taking up your cross daily. No. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? I know we don't like binaries, but some stuff is just binary in the scripture. Genesis 1:27, male and female, he created them. That's still a binding binary. 
Just line up 100 people in front of a mirror, get them naked, you'll see. It's a binding binary. (laughs) Here's a binary. When the cross is coming, when the will of the Father and your desires intersect, you can look like Peter and the other disciples, or you can look like Jesus. You say, oh, Jesus is our ultimate example. He is our ultimate example. But if you need some lesser examples, you can look like Jesus and John or Mary or the other Mary. Everyone didn't forsake him and flee. Some people understood what he was calling them to in the cross, and they walked with him to the very end. So Peter is the counter model here, but there were faithful models among the disciples. John, Mary, the other Mary, and other women. <laughs> Y'all have a men's breakfast coming up. I like, I, I, sometimes I just like to prod men and stick that cattle prod right in. Bow, look at the male-female ratio at the cross. One dude. John. Where those 11 other? Well, one of them was a betrayer. Where those 10 other? So next time you're struggling, just ask yourself in a very personal way, shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? But since we're not individualistic and we're part of a congregation, Grace Church, Let us not hesitate to ask one another also, shall you not drink the cup that the Father has given you? And what is your ultimate desire? That in that drinking, God will be glorified. Because you remember the beginning of his prayer. Father, now's the time. Please glorify me that you may be glorified in me. Let me pray for you. Father, I know what your word calls us to, and I also know where, my, where I and these brothers and sisters live. We live in a place of political power. We live in a place of cultural influence. We live in a place of excessive self-will, even narcissism. And so, Lord, please, by your spirit, give us the grace of obedience to the Lordship of Christ. By your spirit, give us boldness to obey your word. By your spirit, give us the boldness to pay the cost of discipleship. And may we rejoice when we bring you glory by obedience to your will. As single men and women, as married couples, as grandparents, as young adults, may we rejoice when we pay the cost of discipleship to bring you glory. In the world of politics, in the world of 
economics and corporate life out here on this 270 corridor. May we rejoice if we pay costs for being committed followers of Christ. And may we desire to glorify you. Fill us with your spirit that we might do these things for Jesus' glory. In his name we do pray. Amen.